You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, welcome back to Labor Relations Radio. So I'm pretty familiar with the term Weingarten rights, and hopefully by the end of this podcast, you will be too. But as a former union rep, as well as a troublemaker, um, I became familiar with Weingarten rights on the union side. And I found over the years that not a lot of people are familiar with it unless you've got background in a unionized environment. And this is a topic that a lot of non-union employers better get used to really quick because it's coming back to the non-union workplace. And rather than me going into what are Weingarten rights and how they're coming back to the non-union workplace, I wanted to have John Hyman, who has been on the program probably three or four times now, come on and explain a case that he just did a a blog post about yesterday, um, how the NLRB is inching towards Weingarten rights for all employees. And without further ado, here's John Hyman. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, John Hyman, welcome back to Labor Relations Radio. How are you today? I am doing good, Peter. It's good to be back. Thanks for having me. So you posted an article uh, yesterday and actually made it the feature on today's Daily Digest on laborunionnews.com. And I'm honored. I wanted to, well, I saw it and I was like, that's a great topic and not enough people talk about it, let alone know about it. And it could be a big deal for a lot of employers if they don't know what's coming. And that was on the Weingarten rights. But, but I wanted to um, touch on the fact before we go there that you are uh, doing almost a weekly podcast with a friend of ours, mutual friend of ours, Michael Vanderfort at, at drive Through yeah. HR. Yeah, we started, uh, we're calling it um, uh, Laborly Related. It's a semi-regular weekly or every other week, give or take, um, uh, show I'm doing as part of the drive-through HR family um, to where we discuss the whatever labor relations issues came across our radar in the last, you know, week to 10 days to 14 days. So it's a cool little, cool, neat little project. I'm really excited to be part of the drive through family. I've been uh, a frequent guest on their show, uh, but now uh, I, I called myself special labor correspondent. Uh, Mike calls me co-host. I'll go with either, uh, but, I'm ex- <laughs> but, I, but I'm excited to be doing it. So Right. Yeah. So for, for the listeners, if you haven't checked out drive through HR, um, one of the main hosts is Michael Vandervoort. He's a HR person and he's been doing podcasting for years. I think it's on Blog Talk Radio, if I'm not mistaken. Right? It is on Blog Talk Radio, but you can find it in Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and wherever it's syndicated, wherever in your wherever you find your podcast, your podcast app of choice. So, right. so, right. so your your homework is to listen to to this recording first, um, and then uh, go back and and double up on your labor relations news with uh, laborly related on Drive Through HR. So let's get to the topic at hand, Weingarten rights. Now, I'm a, I'm a former union rep, so I'm pretty familiar with Weingarten rights. Um, but you did a post yesterday that, and Jennifer Bruzo has said she wants to bring them back to the non-union workplace. And do you want to go through what Weingarten rights are? Yeah. Um, 
basically in a collectively bargained workplace, in a workplace that's represented by a labor union. Uh, employees have the right to have a representative with them during an investigatory interview in which there is a reasonable belief that uh, the interview will result in discipline. So it's not for every meeting between a manager and uh, uh, manager, supervisor, or HR, or whomever, and uh, and an employee. But if it's one investigatory and B, there's a reasonable belief on the employee's part that it could lead to discipline, then in a unionized setting, the employee, if the employee exercises his or her Weingarten rights and asks for a rep, asks for representation during the meeting, um, the employer. Um, if the employer holds a meeting, the employer has to accede to the request and grant that representation. Right. So can we break that down a little bit? Um, an employee is being investigated and has a reasonable belief that he or she may be disciplined. Um, they, the manager is not required, correct me if I'm wrong, is not required to inform them of their Weingarten rights, but it's only if the employee asks for a union representative, right? You are not wrong. It's not like it's not like Miranda, where you have you know the police have an obligation to inform uh, someone in, in a custodial interrogation of their Miranda rights. It's it's different. Uh, an employer has no obligation to say, uh, you know, do you want to exercise your Weingarten rights? These are what Weingarten rights are. Do you want a union rep present with you? Whatever. It's the the burdens on the employee uh, in all situations uh, to ask for that representation during the meeting. And so the second component to that is during an investigatory interview. So that does not mean, for example, if the employer has already decided what the discipline is going to be, that they're obligated to provide a union rep for that meeting, right? Right. If the decision has been made, Weingarten rights don't apply. If it's like an instructional meeting or training, uh, Weingarten rights don't apply if it's a meeting in which, like like a toolbox meeting or some other situation, maybe where personnel policies or other things are being discussed. Um, even if employees are there's some questioning of employees during those meetings, um, Weingarten rights aren't going to aren't going to uh, apply. Um, and if it's at least my understanding has always been that if it's an investigatory interview, but if it's an investigatory interview, not of the employee being questioned, but of someone else, like the employee's a witness, um, Weingarten rights don't apply there either. So the reason I'm asking that, um, and I'm, I'm parsing it down a little bit, there's a common belief both with employers and employees that I'm, if I'm an employee, I'm entitled to union representation whenever I want it. And it's not always the case. And, and, now, a lot of employers will establish a past practice of affording employees the union rep whenever they want, but it's only legally, it's only that investigatory interview, correct? Yeah, you're, you're right. And the past practice is only going to come, right. Uh, the, the risk for employers in granting them across the board is, and we can talk later about whether that is a good idea or a bad idea or makes sense in, even in union and, and even in non-union settings, because um, I have some I have some thoughts on that, but you're right. It's only in these limited circumstances that we've been talking about. And if you as an employer grant them across the board and you establish a past practice and then you start to deny it, you might open yourself up to uh, a grievance 
um, not necessarily uh, or not at all an unfair labor practice under the national labor under the National Labor Relations Act, but a grievance by the employee that you have a past practice under this collective bargaining agreement of granting me representation during all sorts of meetings, whether covered by Weingarten or not, and now you're not. And so they're turning a a uh, a non-legal right into one that could potentially be enforced under a contract through a grievance and arbitration proceeding. Right. Yeah. And, and so I wanted to clarify that because I didn't want any unionized employers to mistakenly think, oh, I can just stop doing that if I've been doing it in the past. But a lot of unionized employers do grant union representation when they don't necessarily have to. Right. If you've established that past practice, don't stop. It's, it's better. It's best <laughs> to keep doing it. Yeah. Without notifying the union, at least, and let, let that go through the grievance procedure. Um, so Weingarten has been afforded to non-union rep non-union represented employees. I guess that's the right way to say it. Non-union workplaces in the past, right? Yeah, it's been a bit of a ping pong ball at the board, um, depending on which political party is in power and has the majority of members sitting on the board at any given time. So Weingarten is, I think, I think it was decided in 1975. It's a U.S. Supreme Court case. That's where it comes from. Um, NLRV, NLRB versus Weingarten. Um, and since then, it's gone back and forth a bunch, um, starting in um, the early part of the 21st century, or most recently in the early part of the 21st century, um, in a case uh, involving the Epilepsy Foundation of Northeast Ohio. That was the Clinton-era board granted Weingarten rights to non-union employees. That is the right of a an employee in a non collectively bargained workforce to have a coworker representative present during an investigatory interview. Uh, several years later, the Bush era board reversed that in a case involving uh, IBM Corporation. And then uh, most recently in 2017, not a decision of the board, but an advice memo of the Obama era NLRB um, called for the board to flip yet again and again institute Weingarten rights for non-union employees. Um, and uh, But the law, that never was formally adopted by decision of the board. And the, the law of the current, or the, 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 the current law under the National Labor Relations Act is that Weingarten rights only extend to unionized workplaces. But that is, as we can talk about, likely uh, subject to change and probably uh, soon. Yeah, it's Jennifer Bruzo, and I, you mentioned this in your post, and I'm, I'm going to relink this under the uh, audio portion of the, of the episode here. Um, she stated last year that she wanted Weingarten in her infamous, uh, I think it was 12-page memo on all the things she wanted to change about the law. Weingarten was one of them. So right, yeah. it's when, when probably came, coming. When, yeah, when, when she came into power as the board's general counsel, she put out a, a, a policy memo in which she said, right, these are all the things... Uh, that I want to change under the NLRB or under under the NLRA, and near the top of the list was Weingarten rights for non-union workers. So it's it's definitely coming. So the the case that you cited was not a black and white Weingarten type case. It involved some replacement workers, and I didn't read the case. I just read your post. But what was that all about? Yeah, the case was uh, the case is called Troy Grove. It was decided by the NLRB. Last week, it involved um, some permanent replacement workers. Uh, some group of employees went out on strike. 
The employer brings in a bunch of permanent replacements to replace, right, the striking workers. And uh, those permanent replacements, then some were subject to some discipline, and they claim that they should have gotten Weingarten representation during their investigatory meetings with the employer. They filed unfair labor practice charges against the employer, claiming they were denied their Weingarten rights. Um, and the uh, and the board concluded that permanent replacements like the unionized workers that they're replacing uh, are in fact entitled to Weingarten rights and the board uh, violated the or the, the employer violated the act by denying this group of employees the, the Weingarten representatives they asked for. Um, it's not good. They asked for co-workers or union representation? They asked for union representation. So the union is still the, the bargaining agent for the replacement workers is the Correct. finer point to that, which is fascinating Correct. in itself. Yeah, and it's it's a weird because now you have the union you have union who is on the one hand representing the employees that are walking the picket line, and on the, on the other hand, now it's rep also representing that because the replacement workers step into the shoes of the workers they're replacing. Oh, the union is also now representing the replacement workers, and it puts it puts the union in quite the awkward position. So, so can I let's pause on Weingarten for a second because a lot of people don't understand this, and I've been actually to a strike. Well, actually, several strikes where um, workers get themselves permanently replaced during a strike, unionized workers. The union settles the contract and winds up representing replacement workers. And they don't oftentimes realize that can happen to them if they're permanently replaced. Yeah, it's I mean, it is it is the ultimate hammer that employers have. I mean, the, the, the employees ultimate power in the workplace, in a collectively bargained workplace, right, is to, is to walk off the job and strike, right? We can shut we can shut this place down with a strike, except right. that the employer, the, the employer's trump card is the replacement worker. They, they have the right to permanently replace, uh, provided the employer, as they usually can, find employees that are individuals that are willing to cross the picket line. Um, and, and um, yeah, but those employees step into the shoes of the striking workers so they are in the bargaining unit in the same vein that the striking workers are yeah and if that if it is for example a strike over a collective bargaining agreement and that agreement is ultimately settled and a new agreement is reached uh those striking workers out of a job and the replacement workers slide right in under that new contract it's it's a crazy system yeah and so in this case, the workers went out on strike, the permanent replacements got hired, the union apparently was still the bargaining representative, and then they asked for union representation for Weingarten rights. I'm piecing this together as, as right. we're talking about it, which begs the question, would the union even want to represent them, although they have to legally? But they're opening the, yeah, it's, it's another, it's a duty of fair representation issue if right. they don't. So, right. yeah. Yeah, yep. so... So from the union's perspective, I have to represent them whether I want to or not because they're, quote, scabs, right? Right. Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. Interesting. So um, the board ruled that, well, why, why wouldn't that open up the Weingarten rights to everybody? Because it is, well, they're not non-union workers. Yeah, they're not right? non they're union workers. workers. And that's okay. what that's that's what the employer argued in the case. The employer argued that 
um, they, the, the, the employer essentially said that uh, once we once we reach a bargaining impasse, we have the right to unilaterally set terms and conditions of employment um, as we can for these replacement workers. Therefore, um, they're while they're in the, while they're technically in the bargaining unit, they are in a different relationship than the than the than the striking employees. It was a bit of a uh, twisted argument, and therefore, yeah. and therefore, um, the unions um, and basically said that the the permanent replacements don't have Weingarten rights because. The union's interest towards them is different than the union's interest towards the striking workers, which, which, for the reasons we just talked about, I don't think is legally correct. Um, and the board found it was not a legally supportable position and said, look, these workers slide into the same position as the striking workers they replace for all purposes under the National Labor Relations Act. And for that reason, you can't parse, you can't parse out their Weingarten rights and treat them differently for purposes of representation during during it during investigations when Weingarten rights would apply. Which makes sense. I mean if you're if you're the collective bargaining representative over a bargaining unit, it doesn't really matter who's sitting in that unit or in that chair in the unit. Right. Whether they're a replacement or a member. Right. Right, right, right. So yeah, so it it, it was a so I, I don't I didn't find it to be that earth-shattering of a decision in terms of I don't think it really changed anything substantively as I understood it to exist under the National Labor Relations Act. I think what's most interesting about the case is that when you put this case, you know, a a decision of the full board addressing Weingarten in any context together with Abruzzo's memo that she issued saying you know, Weingarten rights for all is is you know close to the center of my labor relations radar as general counsel of the of general counsel of the NLRB. I think when you put those two together, it paints a much bigger, a much broader, more vivid picture of what the board is hoping to accomplish here. Right. Yeah. So it sounds like it's just a matter of time before they come out with a a clean decision that applies to everybody. Yeah. There's no doubt. I haven't. I, I won't pretend that I've scoured the dockets of the National Labor Relations Board to see if that case is on the board's to see if that case is anywhere on the board's docket. Um, I imagine it probably is. Um, and I would think in the next, you know, six, 12, 18 months, we're going to see that case come before the full board and, and we will ultimately get that decision. So back during the Clinton era, when Weingarten applied to non-union uh, workers, I'd never found it to be that big of a deal. In fact, I found it to be more of a detriment to unions because it's one less thing that they can market themselves for. I, I agree with you. It is such an interesting issue to me because you're right. Unions, one of their biggest selling points to employees is that, you know, we are, we're your representative. We have your back when you're facing discipline. We'll be there with you side by side, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And absent a union, you don't have the right to have, you know, your representative sitting with you when you're being interrogated by your manager or your supervisor or your jobs on the line or whatever. It's a really good talking point for unions. Expanding Weingarten to cover all cuts the union off, cuts that argument off at the knees for labor unions 
And I agree with you that I don't think it's that it's not all that problematic for for employers. And as someone who's both a labor relations attorney representing, you know, collectively bargained employers in labor relations matters and a traditional and a more traditional employment attorney who like defends employers in workplace discrimination lawsuits and wrongful termination suits outside of the union context, having a represent a, an employee selected representative in uh, in an investigatory or disciplinary meeting is a, to me it's such a good fact to have at a deposition when I'm when I'm questioning an employee about their perceived or their perception of unfairness in the disciplinary process that led to their termination and I can ask them, well, didn't the company give you the right to have a representative of your choice with you at the meeting that ultimately led to your termination? And didn't you have Joe with you? And, you know, Joe was your best friend at work and you you trust Joe implicitly and didn't you trust Joe had your back? And if something was unfair, wouldn't Joe have spoken up and said it with, you know, and all those questions that I can use, can use to really paint you back an employee into a corner um, and bring out the inherent fairness of a disciplinary process. I want to have that. So to me, I know people wring their hands and cry about Weingarten for all. I, I just don't think it's that big of a deal. And, and, and in fact, it is probably more helpful to employers than it is detrimental. Right. I, you know, I've got um, clients that I deal with that have both union and non-union work workforces within the same workplace and like for the union obviously they've got Weingarten rights but they also afford it for the non-union employees as well and yeah I find it fascinating because they they ask them if they want somebody to sit with them and so it's um now the under the Clinton era when Weingarten was for non-union employees the belief was that if a non-union employee asks for a witness to be there as would be a union rep in a non-union workplace that would be a coworker right right that was the belief back then so i'm i'm curious as to whether and i'm kind of expanding this playing devil's advocate could the current board say well if you know joe's diner goes to discipline the cook for overcooking the omelet and hey i want to talk to you about this overcooked omelet and that person says, well, I want my lawyer or I want a union representative. Could they expand it to beyond just the coworker? Uh, I suppose this board could do whatever it wants to do. Um, when we are talking about, I mean, if I'm an employee, I'm not sure I want my lawyer there because I'm not sure I want my, I don't, I'm not sure I want to turn my lawyer into a witness, um, which might disqualify the lawyer from representing the individual True. in the case. Maybe as the maybe as an, an employer, maybe you want that depending on the skill of the lawyer involved. But um, a union rep, I, I don't think in that context has any has any business being there because it's not a collectively bargained workplace. And and that's where I would start to have concerns as an employer or an attorney for employers. Um, but we typically think of this in the context. You're right of a coworker sitting there as a witness or an observer. Um, and we haven't seen it expanded to uh, a representative from a outside union or an attorney or some other, someone acting in a more professional rep- representation capacity. Or a, or a worker center. I'm, I'm again, I'm playing devil's advocate because I've seen 
how far this board seems to want to go. And which is pretty, which, which is pretty damn far. Yeah. And we're under section seven, it says representatives of their own choosing. Right. That could be construed as a lot more. It, it could be, it could be. Um, and if, you know, if, if my guess is the first case we'll see will be the case involving the employee representative, because that's where, that's how this typically comes up. And then maybe you'll see subsequent cases in which, um, you know, the, the employee asked for an attorney, right, or a, a representative of a labor union or someone from a job center or who knows what, and it was denied because it wasn't a, it wasn't an employee, you know, an employee representative. Um, and then that case has to get litigated. And by then, by that point, because we've talked about how these issues ping pong back and forth, maybe by then the tides will have turned again and this will become a non-issue again. So who knows? Yeah, it's it's fascinating. And again, I've always felt it wasn't that big of a deal. It could potentially be a big deal. Where you see a lot of these charges fall is on smaller employers that just don't keep up with it. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, and the, the concern with particularly if you're going to get a decision that says an employee can allow a, a union rep or a non-union employee can allow, has to you know has the right to a union re- union representation or an attorney someone who was much more seasoned and skilled at this than uh you know an hr representative at a small company you worry about the professional representation hijacking the process um and turning this into something that's it's not that they're not supposed to be able to hijack the process they're not supposed to be uh, obtrusive. They're not supposed to get in the way of the interview. Um, and I can certainly envision a process or in, envision a situation where a, the listeners can see my air quotes, but the professional representation, the lawyer, the union rep, whatever, could really run roughshod over a less experienced, let's say, uh, manager or HR professional, particularly at a small, uh, at a smaller workplace. Um, and start to use and use the Weingarten process, not by its intended purpose, which is really to ensure the, to ensure that the employee is feeling that they're getting, uh, you know, a fair shake in the process, but use it rather to try and and develop facts or build a case against the employer, uh, which is not what this process is supposed to be used for. Yeah, that that's an important point because um, as a union rep, we're always trained that your job as a witness in a wine garden type meeting is not to advocate. If it's there to be a witness and a witness only to the actual investigatory interview, if there's a grievance to be filed, it's filed later or a complaint. Right. You're not, you're not there to argue. You argue during the grievance hearing. Right. And I think you, and you, you as the union rep, you, you have the right to some, to, you know, to sidebar with the employee or offer some counseling during the process, but you start, right. But you can't, you can't get in the way of the, of the, of the interview that's taking place. Right. Cause and from the employer standpoint, the interview should be just to get the facts anyway. Right. right? It's not meant to be, it's not, it's not, it, if, if the investigation is being done the way an investigation is supposed to be done, the decision should, shouldn't be a fait accompli. You should go into it with an open mind, and it certainly shouldn't be an adversarial process. It should be fact-gathering. Right, and which is a whole topic in and of itself, how to conduct a proper investigation. Yes. Um, so let me kind of circle back 
to this because um, I think it's it's worth noting as an employer again if the whole purpose of a of investigation is to conduct the investigation. Weingarten rights are for the representative, whether it's union or non-union, to be a witness, witness only. Now, if, for example, um, the employer has enough facts without that investigatory interview, that kind of nullifies things. So hypothetically, if I'm an employee and I just don't want to cooperate, the employer can still make the decision. Of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and you are, you get the, you, you get, employers' decisions are, are supposed to get some level of deference absent, you know, some showing a pretext. And if you believe you have enough facts without the employee, or if the employee is not cooperating, or if the union rep oversteps and wants to actively coach the employee or get in the way of the the interview and you as the employer feel that you have no choice but to terminate the interview because of uh uh to because you feel that it's the process is being run unfairly or the union is tainting the process you can absolutely do that and make a decision um without with without necessarily having the benefit of the of the employee's input i would say that if we're talking about, um, you know, conducting an interview the way, uh, conducting an investigation the way the investigation is supposed to be conducted, you obviously want to make sure the employee has every opportunity to have his or his or her say and tell his or her story. Um, and if there's any doubt whatsoever, you should make every effort to interview the employee. But if it's if it's clear as day, um, and you don't think interviewing the employee is going to sh- add or subtract anything from the set of facts that you're going to use to make your decision. You don't, there's no, there's no rule that says thou shalt interview the accused employee during a workplace investigation. Right. Yeah. It's it's an important point. It's one of those finer points that I think um, people get lost in kind of the minutia. So it's just good to point out. So, um, have you seen any fallout, like getting calls from from companies saying, "What does this mean?" Weingarten. Rates. I haven't. This is such a. I mean, it, it is. We're talking about it. This is obviously on the radar because we live in this world. I think for right. most for most businesses, um, despite the tremendous reach of the Ohio Employer Law Blog, where I publish <laughs> I publish the article, and you know the people that read me on LinkedIn and whatnot, I, I think it's largely a below the radar issue. Um, I think. I think where we're going to see, I think where we will start to field the calls, where we're going to start to to get the calls from employers is when the board ultimately expands Weingarten to non-union workplaces and they go to discipline an employee and then the employee says, you know, the NLRB says you have to let Tom sit in this interview with me. He's my representative. And the employer who has no idea what the employee is talking about um, says i you know either says i don't know what you're talking about and no i don't and then they get served with the board charge um or they pick up the phone and call me and say this employee says we have to let tom sit in on the interview you know we're we're trying to discipline this guy what are, what are they talking about i think i think that's where the calls are going to come in right not to not to put you on the spot and to play lawyer for a minute although you are a lawyer so this is not billable time so don't it's not Attorney client privilege. So <laughs> hypothetically, um, if you got a call today 
that says, a client says to you, hey, so-and-so, Steve, I was going to, you know, he ran somebody over with a forklift and I want to question him and he's saying he wants a representative. Would you advise them to give the representative or say no? I, I would I would lay out the pros and cons of allowing it and not allowing it. And I would um, try to guide the company towards the decision of allowing the representative to sit in the meeting because ultimately at the end of the day, I think it is better for the employer and the perceived fairness of the process for the for the employee to allow that request um, than to and and have a representative of the employee's choice sit in sit in on that meeting than to than to deny it. Particularly right. because, I mean, I, and I can envision a situation in a law in a subsequent lawsuit where you're having this meeting with the employee. It's the manager and the HR rep on one side of the table, the employee on the other. So the employee is already outnumbered two to one. The employee makes the request for the employ for uh, of the employer to allow the employee to, you know, even the sides by having. Uh, a representative of his choice sit in for purposes of observing the meeting only. Um, and then if I'm the plaintiff's lawyer, the next follow-up question I'm asking to the company is, what are you trying to hide? Why don't you want the employee to have his person sitting there observing and taking notes as to what's going on? You know, what what are you so worried about? Why are you, you know, what what are you trying to hide from this judge or this jury or whomever? And so I when when I'm when I'm advising clients, you know, I, I start at the end game and try and work backwards. And I try to think, you know, how, how is this case going to present to a judge or a jury? What are the landmines I have to look out for? And is there anything I can do to deactivate them before, a, you know, a witness steps on it while they're sitting in the witness box with, you know, eight people impaneled in the jury box. And that's that, you know, so few cases go to trial, but I need to think that way. And, if there's a way for me to deactivate a perceived bias or unfairness because an employer did not allow an employee to have, you know, a silent observer sit in the room, um, I, I would much, I would much rather do that than have uh, jurors, even if it's one juror, take back into the jury room uh, a perception that this process was somehow tainted or unfair because the employee was not allowed to have a, a, a silent representative sit in that room with him. Okay. So a give, give them the opportunity to have a coworker representative quote, you know, sit there as a, as a witness. So the second part of that, um, and I pretty sure I know the answer, but I'm going to ask you anyway. So, you get a call from Joe at Joe's diner and he's wanting to interview Steve for burning the omelet. And Steve says, well, I want, you know, John over there to represent me. Well, Joe doesn't like John. He says, no, you can have bill instead. I think the employee should be picking. I think it's the same, the same issue of perceived bias or unfairness. Um, it is, it uh, to me it's irrelevant whether I like the employee or not. I don't really care. Um, 
I, my, my goal is making sure that the process appears fair to an outside observer looking in after the fact. And if I'm picking, if I'm picking the observer, then uh, if I'm, if I as the employer are picking the observer and, and pushing or forcing that decision upon the employee over his objection and choice of someone else, I might as well not have an observer at all because I'm going to run into the same perceptions of unfairness. Right. So I'm, I, I'm asking this from a labor perspective and I think you're giving me the employment loss perspective and I'm thinking from, from a section seven, right. The employer can't pick the employees. Oh no, absolutely. Yeah. That's absolutely not under section seven. Yeah. If if we're, if we're under Weingarten, absolutely. uh, It's the employee's choice as to who that representative is. And the employer cannot veto that choice or, um, require the employee require the employee to, to go with the employer's choice of representative. Yeah. Cause it's that representatives of their own choosing. Correct. And, and that's why I'm kind of, I'm pointing this out for the listeners who may not be familiar with this and who may get the mistaken idea. Well, so what if they want Bob, I'll go get, you know, so-and-so you, you've got to let them decide who their representative is. Absolutely. So in any case, so what else are you up to? What else am I up to? You're up to no good all the time. Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. And oh, I always it, that is, it, is, it is always a cornucopia of good times here at Wiccan's Herzer Panza. I mean, I got, I've been taking depositions. I'm responding to discovery. I have mediations I'm preparing for. Uh, some speeches I'm giving to some organizations. Um, I'm doing some affirmative action training tomorrow in an, for an organization. It is always a a just a smorgasbord of uh, goodliness that keeps me busy on, on, you know, on any, any given day of the week. Yeah. I've been having a lot of conversations about the new dynamics or lack thereof in the workplace. And it's, it's been a fascinating past year and it's, it's constantly changing. Yeah, it has been. And we're, we're, we're constantly, we're struggling with, um, how do we keep them? And this is universal across the board, right? How do we keep employees engaged? How do we, um, you know, the the what the the buzzword of the month, I guess, is quiet quitting, which is I think the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Right? Um, yeah, it's, but it's really it's it's just it's just how you know how do we keep employees interested and engaged in their jobs um, as um, you know the pandemic lingers on and people are you know, discovering that there's more to life than being slaves to their jobs for 80 hours a week. And, and I, you know, I think employers and employers, I think that are slow to adapt to that changing dynamic um, are going to find themselves uh, having a very, very difficult time um, keeping people employed and filling vacancies uh, for jobs that become open. Well, a lot of that's the tight labor market. And, a, lot, know, a, a lot, a lot, a lot of it is, and and the, but the question becomes, you know, is that li- you know, when is that labor market going to open up, and when it re- when it opens up, is it good? It's not going to look the same as it did in 2019. Um, I think right. work from home has changed the dynamic. I think people embrace it more, embracing or to a greater extent embracing the gig economy has changed that dynamic. I think there's a bunch of bunch of things that have changed in the last two and a half years. That you know, when the labor market loosens, 
uh, it's not going to look the way it looked um, in February of 2020. Yeah, I I had somebody tell me he was fairly high level executive, uh, been in HR for 40 years. He said it will never go back to 2019. No, he no, said, no, no. I don't no. think it's going to be normal for the rest of my lifetime. No, I don't. I don't think so. I don't think it will either. So, yeah, no. I, I'm, I'm doing a series right now on fundamental transformation. A lot of it is is labor and employment law things that are going on from the ABC test out in California, uh, AB five on California to um, I want to do one on joint employer as well. How that's changing things, but it's. I think once this stuff sticks, I don't think we're going back. I think our entire workplace is going to have changed. It will. And I, and I think a lot of it is, I think a lot of it is generational too, I, particularly as the boomers age out of the workplace and Gen Z ages up into the workplace. I think a lot of the attitudes we're seeing are, I think a lot of it is driven by gener, generational um, issues. And I think that's something that employers are going to have to come to grips with as well. Yeah. Yep, indeed they are. In any case, well, Mr. Hyman, thank you for coming on today. Short notice, too. I just saw your article this morning. I posted it. I'm glad it worked out. Yeah. So I'm going to put all your links under the uh, audio portion of this episode. And hopefully listeners who don't know anything about Garden just got a little bit of education on it. Uh, yeah, it's uh, and, you know, stay tuned, because like we said, we think this tide will continue to move uh, to the left on this issue. And, and it is certainly an issue for those employers, non-union employers that are not used to allowing uh, employee representation in these type of situations. It's certainly an issue worth keeping your eyes on. Yeah. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Peter. Talk to you soon. Take care. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So that was John Hyman, one of the most prolific writers of labor and employment law on the internet that I know. And uh, you should be following him. If you're not, I'm going to leave the links to his blog as well as his LinkedIn profile. And he is a wealth of information. Um, Obviously, today's topic was a little bit nuanced, Weingarten writes, but I happened to see his post and and featured it this morning on the laborunionnews.com's Labor Digest. In any case, I'm your host, Peter List. That wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. If you want to reach out, you can get us at Twitter, at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode, or give us a call at 1-888-668-6466. That's 1-888-668-6466. Thanks for listening. Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoy Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.